Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. In this episode, I interview uh, Matt Buckingham. Uh, Matt is uh, someone I really look up to. If you've been listening to this podcast, um, you've probably heard me mention his name a few times. Um, he is a naturalist and biologist um, that is uh, lives in East Texas, and he just knows pretty much all there is to know um, about the natural world. Of course, he won't say that, um, but he's um, just, a, just a very passionate naturalist, and, and he uses uh, photography to really um, showcase the natural world, and um, he's a phenomenal writer, and just the way he writes and the way he captures wildlife and, 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 and you know, plants and just the natural world in general is uh, really inspiring. Um, he's uh, had a large influence on my career. Um, you know, I've always been interested in natural history since I was a little kid. I was always interested in herps, but uh, when I when I discovered Matt, um, he really opened my eyes to, you know, the entire ecosystem and and especially plants. And uh, so it was um, really good to ask him questions and and really get to know his story. Um, because I feel like he's really somebody that uh, more people should look up to, um, you, you know, whether you're an outdoorsman or, you know, an outdoors person or a naturalist or um, just someone that likes nature. Um, you can learn a lot from a guy like Matt. And um, I hope, I hope I um, asked him the right questions. I had so many questions and I just uh, <laughs> had a hard time picking which ones um, and which, you know, paths go down. But uh, I think we covered some really good stuff. Um, and I'll just let you guys enjoy it. Um, so with that, I bring you Matt Buckingham. All right. I'm here with Matt Buckingham. Matt, thanks for being here, brother. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here, man. I've really been enjoying what you've been doing with this podcast and listening to your previous episodes. So I'm excited to get to chat for a little bit tonight. Yeah, man. It, um, for people that have, that listen to it, they, well, I've heard your name before often reference, yeah. uh, your work because it's so inspiring. I was just a herp nerd my whole life. And then you, you, uh, your flicker showed me there's much more to the, to the natural world than just herps. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much cool stuff out there and, and so much biodiversity, even, you know, on a local scale that's out there to be discovered and just kind of understanding plant communities and understanding other aspects of the ecosystem will help you know more about herps or know right. more about birds or whatever you're, you know, whatever your taxon of choice might be, yep. um, a, a, a more kind of looking at the total picture is going to help no matter what you're into. And it's just more interesting to think like that. Yeah. It really is. And I mean, just the way that things are connected, you know, I mean, th thinking of plant communities and how soil properties and slope aspect and canopy cover and all these different things disturbance regime impacts the plants that are there and then you've got these different insects butterfly species that are hosts on particular plant species and then you've yep. got these you know uh, these little smaller predators that feed on those insects and just the way this entire system just works together man it, it, it's fascinating yeah and when you you go out and you take these beautiful photographs and then you explain it in the captions and it's like a you 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 write a story, you, you, you paint the picture and it's, uh, 
it really puts you there. You know, it's really cool. Well, man, no, thanks. I, I'm happy to hear it because that's what I try to do because there's so many little stories going on like every every second of every day in nature. You know, there's like these tiny dramas unfolding that we don't even give, you know, a second thought to. But it's life or death for some of these, you know, smaller creatures and stuff. And I, I just like, you know, telling that type of story and opening people up to it. And I, I grew up, I, I love to read. I, I love to, to write, you know all that kind of stuff. So I think that all just kind of ties into my passion for, for sharing that kind of stuff. So I'm glad, I mean, when I hear, you know, when I hear someone like you that, that, you know, what I post actually had an impact, that's just the best, man. That's the best feeling I can get. Yeah. And, and you also made me realize that there's something, something to appreciate no matter where you're at. If you, if you know about plants, especially plants and plant communities, it doesn't matter where you're at on the landscape. There's probably something cool around, or, you know, uh, fauna too, but, um, especially totally. plant communities, you know? Yeah. And you know, it's easy to like think about, well, I want to go to Yellowstone and see bison, bears, and elk. And I mean, I love that too. Don't get me wrong. You know, charismatic megaphone, all that stuff is awesome. But like, you know, the Columbia bottomlands of Southeast Texas or like even some little prairie remnants, like just driving down a County road and seeing these indicator plants that really tell you that there's a prairie remnant there. It may not look like it once did, but some of those plants are still there. And it tells you a little bit about the history of that, that place. And I mean, no matter where you're at, you can find little gems like that and you could piece together stories of what happened there. And yeah, yeah I, I mean, anywhere you're at, there's something good to see. <clears throat> Before we get too deep into the ecology stuff, let's uh, start from your childhood, Matt. Yeah. How it all started. Yeah, dude. No. I was, I mean, I think like many of us, I was one of those kids that whatever, whatever sparked this passion in me happened in some time before I can even remember, you know, like my parents will tell you, like, even before I could talk, I'd be crawling and I'd be looking at every little rock or every piece of dirt or every little plant I found on the ground and stuff. Um, but two, two experiences that stand out um, in my mind, one is just an overall, it's kind of an overarching the, these we would take every year my family and I would take these camping trips out to the national parks out west so we go to Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Park Rocky Mountain National Park you know the Grand Canyon and we just do these two week long camping trips and you know from when I was from from basically before I was a year old all the way up until I kind of broke off you know after high school and started doing my own thing so we did that and that just had a huge impact on me. I mean, seeing yeah. the wildlife out there, seeing places that are more or less like they were, well, in some cases, you know, Yellowstone Glacier, they, as far as the lower 48 goes, those places are pretty intact yeah. in terms of, you know, the historic species that, that used to be there are still there. But um, <clears throat> so that had a huge impact on me. And then another experience that I remember was I, I was four years old and playing in a park, you know, so I grew up in, I grew up in Chicago in the suburbs of Chicago, about an hour North, kind of closer to the Wisconsin border. And uh, there was a park near our house. And my parents said, I, I was always like, before I ever, I ever knew what herping was, I would turn over logs and lift things up and see what was under them. You know, who knows? I must've turned a rock when I was a kid and saw something cool. And then it stuck with me, but I lifted a piece of tin and there were six Eastern tiger salamanders under it. And my parents let me keep a couple of them. Yeah. And so 
we brought him home, set him up in this little completely inappropriate setup for him. You know, it was like gravel, like yeah. gravel and like half water. You know, it was, it was horrible, but they did fine. I mean, they're, they're hardy critters. And, oh, yeah. so, you know, I just remember sitting and watching them. We would feed them little bits of hamburger meat and stuff like that. And, um, you know, just watching those, just sitting, looking closely and finding them. It's like being on a treasure hunt and finding these incredible, incredible little amphibians that had an impact too. And so, you know, ever, ever since then I did, I was a kid, you know, even when I was six years old that neighbors would call if there was a snake in their yard and I'd go and wrangle it and move it down the road. Or I'd go to the, we'd go to the pond when the toads were breeding and, you know, we'd catch 50 American toads and we go, you know, we go try to catch all the frogs in the pond and that kind of stuff. Um, I had the pets, you know, I had a little pet garter snake for several years back then. And, uh, you know, a, a Plains garter snake from from Chicago up there, um, just all that kind of stuff. And reading, I mean, I could never read enough. I can never look at enough books. Draw, I would draw wildlife and write little stories about wildlife and do all that kind of stuff. Even when I was a little kid, you know. Yeah. Um, and then you know, so it came time. Uh, we moved to Texas when I was thirteen, and uh, it came time to look at what I wanted to do for college and you know I, I knew like I already knew that I wanted to do something and related to wildlife related to natural resources yeah. and I uh, ended up you know we moved to Houston area and Stephen F. Austin State University is pretty close it had a pretty good wildlife program from everything I was reading and so went to school at SFA and um, that just kind of introduced me to the Piney Woods man and it was cool because we had the wildlife, the wildlife management degrees under the forestry program. So it's a, a bachelor of science in forestry, kind of with an emphasis on wildlife management. And our all of our labs for kind of the upper level classes were very field intensive. So every week we'd have like a three hour lab and it was almost always in the field. And that just kind of got me out seeing some of these places. And that kind of made me decide, you know, I want to start exploring on my own and checking some of these places out and just realizing what was here. And, you know, I, I'm the, I'm the kind of guy that like, I go out and I see something, I want to know what it is. I identify right. it and I go back and I read as much as I can thing, you know? Um, yeah. So going through, going through the program there, I had a couple of really good mentors. I had uh, Dr. Warren Conway, who's he's, he's at uh, Texas tech now. And uh, Dr. Chris Comer, he's over in, um, he's in the private sector now. Um, and then, you know, finally I got to take ornithology. And back then I was real, real big bird guy. And I still like, you know, I, I still really so you, like birds. You picked up that. birds somewhere along the way in your childhood. Yeah. You know, we, in Chicago, we had a, well, in Fox River Grove, which is, which is a suburb of Chicago. It was, it was a small town, kind of a little farming, edge of the farm, edge of the city kind of community, yeah. in that transition area. But we would always hang out feeders. And it's funny because uh, American goldfinch finches bred there. So we'd get them to visit our feeders like in the spring and summer, mm-hmm. you know, compared to like where we're at now, we get them in the winter sometimes. Yeah. So they were, they were hanging like right outside the kitchen window. And I remember like just watching those full breeding plumage <laughs> finches come and feed, you know, a couple of feet away from me and just how cool that was. And once we moved to Texas and my mom, so my parents are all, you know, they're, they're, they're not biologists or anything like that, but 
they are definitely nature lovers. And yep. I mean, they're, I, I totally credit them for this passion of mine because they just exposed me to all these really cool places and camping, but she just started getting into birding. I think she looked at a, a field guide and saw a painted bunting and was like, I want to, I want to see one of these kind of thing. So we started doing these birding trips to, to the coast, you know, Texas coast and that kind of stuff when I was just out of high school. And that, yep. that just kind of really like sparked a fascination for birds for me. Yeah. And you know, so much so I, my, my ornithology professor, Brent Burt in, in college, um, you know, we became very close friends and uh, when it came time to do grad school, he actually kind of reached out to me and they had this plan for some of these neotropical studies. And so I ended up getting to go down to Argentina and, you know, lived in Argentina for about a year doing the research from, from my master's, looking at different aspects of, of the, the bird community down there and actually getting to tie in interests, you know, looking at relationships between different types of bird species richness Yep. and different habitat components. So basically trying to use different habitat components as predictors for different aspects of bird species richness. So yep. you know, I looked at things like total species richness, but also endemic species richness. So I was working in this Atlantic rainforest. Um, yeah, what was the plant community there, there or communities? So it's, it's Atlantic forest. So it's, it's this really, it's actually one of like the world hotspots for avian endemism. So, you know, there's a lot of species that are really specific to this area and it's in like kind of Northeastern Argentina, Southeastern Brazil, um, parts of Paraguay there. And, and, and um, it's mostly subtropical, but it does get a little bit tropical and it's just this coastal rainforest um, that's just really you know diff different palms aracaria species a lot of these different tropical tree species down there um but it's super diverse super cool i mean it's it's like a you know there's jaguars and tapirs and you know brown capuchin monkeys and all that kind of stuff down there yeah um so it's just a super cool place for bird species riches and you know in this park i worked in iwazu national park which is northern argentina and then there's like a sister park across the border in Brazil. But like in that park alone, I think there's something like 450 bird species recorded, Jesus. you know, in like one national park. Um, so it's just like the, the diversity was amazing, but you know, down, down there in, in the, the tropics and the, the neotropics, at least the diversity is incredible, but the abundance is not. So you get a lot of different species but you don't get like huge numbers of any one species. We, me and uh, uh, a previous guest talked about that. And it, yeah. That's just a, a, um, a fact of ecology, right? Like what it is, what I think a big part of it is, is that, you know, food is more limiting down there. Yeah. So, you know, up here, why a lot of birds come up here to in the summer is that we get these huge, boom cycles of insects in the summer right that they're dormant in the winter they're overwintering as you know eggs or larvae or whatever they might be and in the summer they're coming out in huge numbers and so these birds are coming here to jam in the, the, the protein and things like that and the reason they're so abundant is because we've only got this little period of window for them to carry out their entire life cycle yeah but you get down to the tropics and you've got a more stable system i mean you have wet and dry seasons and stuff like that that's, and that that's the main right. dynamic factor but being that food for you know being that especially plant material food is more stable down there 
but it's not as abundant. So these insects don't need to go through this boomer bust cycle. So insects and fruits and things like that are a little bit more, um, they're not trying to jam everything into three or four months. They can yeah. carry things out over a longer period of time. And so the resources, while there's a lot of different resources down there, there's not just like this obscene amount of any one single resource. Yeah, I got you. I think that plays into it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's probably, there could be more to it. It's so complicated. Oh, for sure. Complex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, there's a lot to it. And there's, you know, and one of the things I came to find is there within habitat, there's a bunch of different variation, you know? So I, you know, kind of the basic results of what I found is that forests with um, these multi-tiered forests. So if you have like a well-developed uh, understory, mid-story, overstory, that kind of stuff, you get greater bird species richness. Right. But that's only really half the story because mixed in those forests, there's also these just these big bamboo thickets. And so it's, it's just different species of bamboo that are almost like trees. And so they're in these big clumps. But if you look inside any given bamboo thicket, the species richness, species diversity is really low. But the species that are there are these really cool specialist species. They're often endemic. You know, they've evolved because these little patches of bamboo are kind of fewer and far between. And so, so it's kind of like this, this idea of some of these mountaintop salamanders, right? Like they, they become islands. and As the plant know, community gene, changed over time. Yeah, you know, gene flows cut off between yeah. some of these wider ranger populations. And so yes. they evolve, you know, in, into something different. And so those bamboo communities are super cool. But if you were just like trying to say, look at species richness, and I, you look in there, you'd be, you know, that's garbage. It's yeah. There's only three species in there compared to, 30 species in this other place, but man, you don't want to take out those three species. They're just right. so cool. So. cool. Now there weren't any like, um, real open, like grassland type habitats where you were, huh? Not, not where I was, but there are in Argentina. So, I mean, okay. Argentina is okay. freaking yeah. awesome. Like you think of Texas. So like, what's so cool about Texas is that we have such a big East West gradient, you know, and I mean, we do have it to a degree North to South as well. Yeah. But like going from east to west, you know, we cut through so many different ecosystems, you know, yeah. kind of different ecotones yeah. and we're getting into some really different things. But Argentina from north to south, I That's don't know the, the distance, yeah. but it, it's really far. And so you have like up in the northwestern part of Argentina, you've got tropical forest, yeah. you've got yeah. spectacle bears and things like that. Those kind of species make it right up to that corner. And then you go down to the southern tip of Argentina and you're, you're basically you know, you're approaching that Antarctic circle, you're down right. in like, you know, Patagonia and you've right. got penguin diversity, crazy penguin diversity and, and you know, things like that. So yeah. Argentina is an awesome country and, and but, I was lucky to get to see a lot of it. You, you got to know that those two national parks pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I lived in Iguazu National Park in Argentina. For and, how, how long at a time? Or like, uh, down for like so, six months or something and then i was down there for over eight months yeah oh wow man that's a yeah. long time yeah it, it was awesome that's and, a that's like a life-changing you know profound career experience it, it 100 was and i was living in a, a research station down there that's you know just a five-minute walk from some of the most impressive waterfalls in the in the entire world you know, I mean, I, I, I can't remember if it's the highest in volume or something, you know, it's got yeah. one of those claims that it's, it is an impressive system. Um, and, you know, cool stuff happens down there. There's, uh, 
I wasn't there when it happened, but you know, I, I hear a story of someone in the research station showering and hears this like blood curdling scream, runs outside thinking someone's hurt and they see that a puma's taken a little Masama, a little red brocket deer right there in like the yard of the research station. And, um, you know, I used to, I used to walk. So I had these different transects at different states, distances apart. And like the furthest one was like a, I don't know, a five mile walk one way, you know? So I used to walk and on the way, I'd always pass this little strip that was muddy and I'd look for tracks. And I remember one morning there being nothing. And then one that, you know, later that morning, when I came back through, there were Jaguar tracks, just, fresh oh, man. <laughs> you know, so I, I know that they, like they, they were watching me. I'm sure they, they knew I was there at the very least. Yeah. Um, so they, yeah, you saw plenty of, uh, birds and, and you saw some cool herps too. Right. Yeah, they're cool. They're they're very cool herps down there. There's some um there's some really cool bothrop species down there. Um there are some some cool coral, you know, there's some very cool coral snakes. Mm-hmm. Not in the park, but I got to see a um yellow anaconda. Oh wow. Um that, that was down in the the Steros de Ibaras, like the it's the second largest wetland complex in South America, like behind the Pantanal, which yep. is in Brazil. So I saw I saw a nice I mean a nice good yellow anaconda down there and different caiman species and things like that and there's there's some pretty cool frogs there's those those milky tree frogs and some other really cool stuff down there. Um, you got a good photo of a, the broad snouted caiman. I really love that photo you took. Yeah, man. That yeah. So broad snouted caiman. Those jacare caimans, or they call them black caimans down there, but they're they're not they're not like the, the big, big black caimans. <laughs> they're they're you know but, topping out at eight feet or so but that broad snout's a weird that's a weird crocodilian it's a goofy yeah it's a it's a little dude it's it's this this little guy and yeah so i've seen him in captivity they they had one at the this uh croc park i worked at and it was a, it was a young one you know and had <laughs> that that bulky head and just a yeah a funky little croc so you had a you're into photography at that point i don't know when you picked that up but man i probably so my parents were into photography but they weren't like into it like i became but i remember always going on their trips and wanting to use their old i mean they just had old slr cameras film day cameras and then whenever digital finally hit my dad got one of those i think it was like a canon power shot g3 or something it was like a shoot or something it was a four megapixel point and shoot camera that had like a 1.5 time zoom or something like that you know but he would let me take it out when i'd go backpacking back in those days I, like after i graduated high school up until i kind of went away to argentina i would take these just regular backpacking trips solo backpacking trips different places and he let me take it and i just connecting photography with those experiences just kind of became like they went hand in hand for me you yeah. know and and uh, so I started with that and then um, they finally, you know, it was a really cool, my, um, my, my grandma, my dad's mom had passed away. And then that Christmas, I think they wanted to do something special for us. And so they got me a, um, my first DSLR camera, which was like a Canon Rebel XT 8 yep. megapixel. And that was it, man. That was just yeah, a game was... changer for me. And the Photography and, and uh, it's like a, a natural history. It's like, it goes together because it's like the it's like the modern way of uh, the naturalist. We don't collect actual specimens anymore. We collect photos. You know that's how I think of it. 
yeah i mean that's that's a big part of it you yeah. know you collect photos and and that photo is forever in you know it's, it's forever linked to that experience too yeah you know like i've probably got like four to five thousand pictures on Flickr, but i could like scroll back there and like each one i could remember yeah. you know i mean that's part of what it what it is it's 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 more you know i love to share content and, and of course i love all the attaboys and stuff who doesn't but yeah. for me it's really more for me and you know yeah uh, going back to something that happened five years ago and seeing that photo and being like i remember exactly what happened and man your Flickr is phenomenal that like when i get bored i just i just go through your Flickr. They have natural history books and stuff, and there's a lot of like resources online, but there's not like you've captured so much in the area I'm interested in, East Texas, you know? Yeah, well, and like there's no other way to see see through that lens. Yeah, and what I like about it is you could search it too, right? Yeah. So like if you're like curious about something, you're like, I wonder if Matt wrote about this, or I wonder if somebody else has a picture. You could search that. And it'll pull those up, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's cool. I like Flickr, man. It's the it's, it's awesome. not like the powerhouse that Instagram is or anything like that in terms of actual exposure, but you get large format pictures on there and you can write, you don't have any kind of limit to the caption you can write yeah. and all that kind of <clears> stuff. Before we get too much into uh more of the hobby side, let's stay on uh let's get back on track with your career before we get into that, that yeah. stuff. So, so I'll just back it up real quick before I went to grad school and for anybody out there that's thinking about a career in wildlife or that's in school trying to study wildlife, I did summer jobs and they're not, they're a little more than an internship. You know, you're not getting paid a whole lot of money, but oftentimes you're getting room and board or something like that. Um, But I did a few of those jobs. I did one doing uh looking at american alligator ecology inland alligators so we worked at steinhagen you know danby and up at uh, little sandy national wildlife refuge up in wood county up near hawkins and i mean going out and catching alligators you know and i mean i know i know you could relate to that that that's oh, that's probably that. the funnest job i ever had i mean you know it's just there's nothing like so it. there's fun. nothing yeah there's nothing like getting <laughs> just you know a big eight to ten foot alligator and Feeling it's, the best, that it's the best field work oh, <laughs> like it's, it's up there it's at least incredible. it's yeah. incredible and so that was that was just a blast but you know i, I also did some uh, you know i did a study up in the panhandle looking at um uh snowy plover. plover oh snowy yeah, plover snowy okay snowy plover yeah snowy plover nesting ecology and and kind of some other aspects of their life history I okay up, yeah did up there and what, what it is you just get in I mean, you can go the A&M job board route and look for postings and stuff. But if you're going to university, get in with your professor. You know, a lot of times their grad school, their grad students need a field tech or two. Um, And if you build that good relationship, which is that's exactly what opened that door for me. I mean, Warren Conway, kind of my undergrad, one of my undergrad mentors. I mean, he's the reason I, I got those jobs. And and I can tell you when it came time to actually getting like more permanent positions those those look good on a resume right. and I, I guarantee they had an impact yeah um, yeah so i did a few of those i did another one up in chesapeake bay um it was this project looking at habitat selection and population dynamics of these secretive marsh birds in you know kind of the eastern shore of maryland and, and delmarva peninsula and looking at 
seaside sparrows, salt marsh sparrows, black rail, clapper rail, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's some good stuff right there. Oh, dude, those those, <laughs> those marshes are some of the not, best. I love those marsh oh, specialist it, birds. <laughs> it's not like it's not like Texas marsh either up there. I mean, there's big expanses of salt marsh, oh, man. and um, it um, you know, it's funny it. Some of those places too, like so Assateague Island and Chincoteague, they've got those ponies. You know, I don't know if you've ever heard. I've like, never, I've never heard of this. They're like the ponies are a big deal up there, and like people love the ponies. Like a, a horse, a literal yeah. horse. Okay. Yeah, they're they're like these little ponies. That, oh, okay. Yeah. That I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how. I don't know the exact backstory of how they got out there, escaped. But there's just this huge population of feral ponies out there. Weird it's a big draw and everybody loves them but like those the salt marsh where they're at it's like just denuded i mean like all the spartina and all the distichlis and all that stuff's just like chewed to the ground and oh so wherever, God, wherever you have these dense ponies you don't have salt marsh sparrow you don't have seaside sparrow that kind of stuff um but yeah that's one of those tangents we were saying right <laughs> but the yeah, so, overall though it had large expanses of this the the spartina cordgrass marsh compared to texas yeah there there are and you know it's also cool because it's different like in texas you transition from marsh to prairie right to you know woodland or savannah or whatever it might be there it's like you have this strip of marsh and marsh and then you got the woods and so like in some areas you can see the effects of sea level rise as salt marsh and sea level and salt marsh are encroaching into what were once forested areas and you've just got like these dead mm-hmm. loblolly pines like old specters sitting out in the middle of what's now marsh it's 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 kind of it's kind of interesting it's very different so the reason for that and, and let's not get off on this tangent because we could go deep you could go deep on this um the reason we have extensive prairie that prairie transition is because of uh, sea level rise like thousands of years ago right and, and just a well, lower lower elevation so it's it's not it's not from sea level rise it's from sea level retreat Re- retreat okay retreat right okay. because okay. the gulf like the gulf used to be far inland and that's right. why it's like if you ever look at a geologic map of texas you'll see all these bands of these different geologic substrates these different formations and there are these bands that are largely paralleling the coast yeah. And then you get out to like central Texas and west yeah. and north north Texas, it's all just a mishmash of stuff. Crazy stuff. <laughs> you could so you could see where the Gulf used to be, and then you know. And those bands are a lot of them are pure sand, Sparta sand. There's a couple, yeah. There's a couple Queen of those, sand. Those sand bands that were put yeah. down during the Eocene, yeah. But you could see like so you could see like as this the Gulf retreated to its current state, that's what it did is it just laid down these different bands of sediment and that's why we have really interesting plant communities and animal communities Yeah, that's why (laughs) you can get all this diversity in a small area because some of these some of these bands like they call them groups right like you've got like the wilcox group and these different groups and within each group you've got these different formations that are kind of mismatched and so if you have like a steep slope that slope might cross you know a couple different formations and you can watch plant community change you know yeah. as you're going so down cool. yeah. we'll have to get let's get more into that later um yeah that's yeah, really so, cool stuff let's finish yeah, your career so, first <laughs> yeah so after that so after some of those jobs i you know after i finished up my master's uh, pretty quick 
I got a job with Bayou Land Conservancy. And I know you had Suzanne on. So yep. anyone, so basically after I left Bayou Land Conservancy, Suzanne came into my position there and she since, I mean, did amazing things with it and, yeah. and, and went, you know, beyond that. But um, so yeah, Bayou Land Conservancy, just real quick, it's this small, it's a small land trust, but it's an accredited land trust, mostly working in the Lake Houston watershed um, we did a lot of stuff on Spring Creek, which is a really cool creek. We had some Cypress Creek, Little Cypress Creek, but we also had a few outliers. We got some uh, a nice Robertson County Preserve. They have a nice, a couple um, kind of more big thicket area stuff. They did a bank. They, you know, they they worked on a, a mitigation bank in the Columbia Bottomlands area and stuff yeah. like that. So. And your job um, there was like you were doing a lot of like biodiversity assessments, looking at yeah. sites and. Yeah, so I was a, I was a conservation lands biologist was my title, and so I, I mean, I, it was a small group. So it it was me and one other biologist, and the executive director and like an administrative assistant. So it was a small group. Um, so I kind of did it all. But yeah. what I was really focusing on is we had um, at the time we didn't have any land and fee. We had all conservation easements. Okay. And you know these conservation easements. It's just this this protective covenant that goes with the land. It's a legally binding document, for lack of a better term, that uh, puts certain restrictions on a property. Um, and it's a voluntary thing. It's it's never forced. So it's in a you know a landowner does it say because they want to make sure that their property in the future is not subdivided or you know we we identify these conservation values. They want to make sure those conservation values are looked after in perpetuity. So so they'll put a conservation easement on the land. Which is one it's of also, the biggest threats to Texas, right? Is the generational land use? Sure, shit. yeah. I mean, you know, it fixes that habitat thing, the right. habitat fragmentation, breaking yeah. up a big parcel into little little right. parcels. Sometimes it is required. So, like sometimes, you know, f- mitigation banks will have to have a conservation easement to provide some assurance that okay. they'll stay that way. Or you know, you know, other other there's different types of mitigation options, yeah. permitting responsible, and we actually had an in lieu fee program back then. Um, but so, you know, part of it was identifying conservation values. So doing biodiversity assessments, habitat assessments, determining what are the conservation values of this piece of land. And those are the kind of things that we need to uphold. So that's what we would do on the front end. That's what I would do on the front end when we were actually, you know, establishing a new conservation easement or something like that. And then for each conservation easement that we have, we do these annual monitoring reports to ensure that nothing's happening to okay. negatively impact those conservation values. And sometimes you find stuff, you know, and, and those values so look at like species, species richness and, and it stuff can like be, that. yeah. And I mean, it can essentially Wetlands be and, anything. Okay. It can be anything. And if you have, you know, you can, you know, conservation easement sounds restrictive, but you know, a landowner might want to hunt it or they might want to do a certain timber harvest in some kind of a selective way that actually, benefits man some management objective whatever it might be um so there's a lot of con- different conservation values ours okay, was I usually see. biodiversity driven or like you know we found some interesting species or some interesting habitat or some you know yeah. s- some good biodiversity or something like that um so it's oftentimes something like that but yeah you know so if you go out there and you see there's a bunch of trash that's been dumped or there's you know trees that had been cut that weren't supposed to be cut that kind of thing so those are those annual monitoring visits are ensuring that 
we're not, um, you know, there's nothing happening that's negatively impacting those. And I used to do them on me and, and uh, the other biologists at the time, we used to do those all ourselves, but since they just kept growing, the, the organization kept growing in the acres that it had under easement that that's mostly done volunteer. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go do some monitoring on my weekends. So I don't know if it's still around, but back then when I was there, we had, it was called the spring Creek uh, ambassador program. And it was this, just like this mini program that people would go through. We'd have a couple classes, get people on board. But a lot of those folks went on to be like our monitors really for our properties and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, y'all see, I'm, I'm sure there, I don't know if that's around, but there's, I'm sure there's still plenty of volunteer opportunities with Bioland Conservancy. Um, but we also did a lot of environmental education, which I really enjoyed. So yeah. we had like a couple of flagship preserves, you know, and we'd have students from various ages come out and we'd teach them about different things out there and different kind of aspects of ecology and all that kind of stuff. So. So valuable, the, the getting the kids in, involved. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's awesome. And, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of those kids would not be otherwise exposed to that kind of thing, you know, and you never know, like you never know how you'll resonate with somebody. Maybe you have, maybe I, I teach 5,000 kids and like two really like it, it ignites some spark in them yep. that results in some, you know, a passion for the natural world. And right. they, seek to pursue it and they decide to pursue a career in conservation or something like that, man, even that two out of 5,000 would be worth it for me. That's you know? how I've always thought of it too. Yeah. Doing a lot of that at the zoos. Um, yeah. Seeing thousands of kids a year. And I'm like, surely some small percentage of these kids are going to go ahead and, and study biology and, and pursue natural history and conservation. And for one, that's going to be great for them because we live wonderful lives. People like me. And yeah. You. Like we're, we're just surrounded by just, just this complex landscape and it's just it's also kind of inconvenient because that what's that auto leopold quote like the seeing the landscape through the lens of an ecologist is like really depressing basically yeah at the same time but um overall though it's a high quality of life in this career for for a lot of yeah, people yeah man i you know well well, well back so to the fun. kid thing yeah a couple of things there like back to the kids you know it can be easy to like get bummed out when you're just talking you're seeing all these eyes rolling and like shoulders slumping and like you know these half these kids don't want to be here but i find that you know when they're actually out in the field doing stuff like everybody's engaged everybody's oh, yeah. enjoying oh, it yeah. you know and so it's it's just there's that and then i remember one time i just was giving a talk about big thicket biodiversity or something like that and i got to talking about spotted salamanders and the the mutualistic relationship with those um that Ophelia amblystomas, that, that um, amblystomensis or whatever it is, that algae that's only found within the egg masses okay, of spotted yeah. salamanders, like that's the only place in nature it occurs. And like this, this girl, she must, she must have been 12 or so, her eyes lit up. And then like afterwards, she came up with her dad and, you know, he's like, go ahead, ask. She just started asking all these questions about it and, yep. you know, how cool she thought it was. And look, I, I feel like that stuck with her, you know, I, I don't know, she, she maybe didn't, end up to be an ecologist or anything but i bet she kept that appreciation Appreciate it. for nature and imparted it on somebody else hopefully down the road you know yeah yeah i mean not everybody is uh cut out to be in this field to work in this field but i feel like everybody should have some basic understanding of their local ecosystems or appreciation because it, it can improve their experience in life 
Yeah, I feel I like mean, everybody could benefit. It's like a human instinct to be connected to the natural world in some way. It is. I mean, it's part of our heritage. And it's cool it's history too. Our, it's cool. Yeah, history. it's part of our evolutionary history. Yeah. It's part of just our heritage. And Cultural you know, history. Yeah, we've done so many things to make it easy to ignore that, right. which is a shame. But it's it's where we come from, man. Yeah, yeah I'm I'm with you on that, a hundred percent. I mean, just being able, the value of being able to walk in the woods. And you don't need to identify every single plant and animal you come across, but being able to know a few different trees right? and know, you know, what are these trees important for, yep. or which wildlife species are these trees important for and things like that. Just being able to know a little bit of that is just, it's powerful, you yeah. know? Yeah. It, uh, it's also yeah. like, um, I, like when I'm walking through an intact prairie on the Texas coast with Mima mounds and diverse herbaceous ground cover and, like this is what the early European settlers were yep. like, you know, on on wagons, you know, trucking yep. through 300 years ago. Yep, or some like well managed longleaf longleaf pine, pine and, same thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, and you know those those prairies too. It's funny because so many people probably look at those and are like, "What is that?" Eh, just a I wouldn't bother. <laughs> I wouldn't think to walk around in there. But like when you actually do and just see all the diversity and stuff out there and. Yeah, I mean, a, a, a native, a virgin prairie is such a, it's like such a magical thing to, oh, to be I, out there. I, but, um, I mean, you're probably the same way. I can't pick one favorite oh, it's uh, ecosystem or plant community, but it, I like it prairies a lot. <laughs> I do too, but it changes. But, uh, it changes season to season. Depends on the <laughs> season. It depends year. on the year. It just always changes. You often yeah. say, uh, like this tax or that tax is my favorite. I think it depends just on what time of year it is for you. Oh, dude. Same thing yeah, with it's with... hard. I mean, there's a few, like there's a few standouts, but overall, yeah, it would be impossible to pick. Right. Yeah. You spend but a lot of time uh, studying plants now. It seems like yeah, occupies much. Like, would you, would you consider yourself a plant ecologist at this point? You know, it cer- certainly rather... seems like it. <laughs> so, First and foremost, you know, I consider myself a naturalist and right. I do, I mean, I consider myself a scientist as well. I mean, I'm yeah. a biologist. It's what I do, you know, it's how I make money or how I make most of my money at least. Um, but, you know, being a naturalist is just such an important thing because it's easy to get bogged down in the science and like, well, we need, we need this level of statistical significance and we need to put it through this rigorous statistical analysis and we need these data to be collected in this way. But observation is like the foundation for science, you know? And so I, I would never say that science is more valuable than just simple observation. So when it comes to natural history in particular. Yeah, totally. And, And so just like, with physics and chemistry, thing. it's it's very quantitative, but natural history can be very qualitative. Yeah, I mean, just going out and, and watching yeah. what 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 when do these plants come out each year? You know, yeah. this year they're coming out two three weeks later than last year. What what could be the reason for that? You know, this year there's like there's like you know one out of every four trout lilies is blooming when it's usually like one out of every twenty. You know, what's yeah. going on? whatever those little things are just like reading those patterns and then watching birds or watching, you know, I don't know, man, one of the most profound experiences I've I've ever had was, um, you know, spotted salamanders. I say that that they change, but spotted salamanders is like, no doubt one of my top two favorite animals. Yeah. And 
for so long, I'd always go and see them, but I'd always like look under logs at the right time of year and find one up under there. And finally, one year I found this, this good breeding pond that was um, really easy to access. And so we had, we thought the conditions were perfect. And I went out there with a, a few friends and, you know, it's storming and lightning as we're driving out there. We get out there and there's just like this deafening chorus of Cajun chorus frogs and leopard frogs and pickerel frogs and spring peepers. And you're hearing all this stuff going on. And then all of a sudden, like the sky clears and like all these millions of stars come out. And then we go over to the pond and we just put this flashlight in the bottom. And there's like hundreds of spotted salamanders in the pond swimming around. And like, we're seeing males like guarding spermatophores and doing their little aquatic acrobatics and trying to guide the females we have females overpositing on you know we're seeing all this stuff and we're just seeing it there's there's not science in that we're just seeing what's happening yeah you know and And that's such a special moment it's it's so profound some would call spiritual for it is it really is it really is spiritual i mean whether whether you're you know religious or secular like it's it's akin to a spiritual experience it it, it really is it really it it was for me at least and um you know and not to get into philosophy but like it's easy to it's easy to get bogged down and like what's the meaning of life with these questions i don't understand them whatever but like when i see that kind of stuff like i don't care what the answer to some of these questions right. are you know i'm not worried about it's like I'm, this is the i'm about experiences experiences yeah, this is, is what the meaning of life like this high yeah. this high that i'm feeling right, right now seeing this stuff going on this this window into this this very secretive world where these salamanders yeah. only emerge like yeah. once a year and yeah and you know i've tried to recreate that every year since and you know i'll get you know, some years I'll see a few in there. Some years you'll see, you know, a little bit, little pieces of it, but I've never seen it to that scale ever since, you know, it's such the conditions have to be just right to trigger that singular explosive event and and just timed it right that year. And And this was in the piney woods of East Texas. This was, yeah. Yeah. Which makes it it even more special because we're out here on the Western extent of their range. Yeah. A lot of people yeah. think of Texas as deserts and and uh, dry landscape, but we got yep. spotted salamanders and music yep. forests and. Which I think I think we talked about this a little bit when when we got together uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it is like you could go out to to Tennessee or you could go out somewhere in the southern Appalachians or you know the Piedmont or whatever, and you could find like a lot of the species that are rare here, like. You know, so we have a lot of these spring ephemeral forbs like bloodroot and trout lily and trillium and things like that. They're they're pretty rare here in Texas. And you go out to out east and they're just super abundant. Yes. So you could go out there and see them, no problem. But seeing them here, like at the edge of their range where they're occurring yeah. in these little relictual populations, like there is something special. Explain that. that. Paint that picture for people. Because I've actually only just grasped the whole glacial influence Yeah. Uh, of like a lot of our plant animal communities and East Texas, a lot of those species exist, like their existence has a, that glacial story to it. So can you explain? Yeah. That? So, you know, during, you know, during the Pleistocene, during, during the last period of, of glacial advancement, when the, the glaciers were really far South, uh, I mean, Texas was completely different. A lot of it was kind of more of that uh, broadly forest and, and that type of thing. Um, it was much wetter. It was cooler. 
And so some of those species, typical of the east and the northeast and the higher, you know, the, the Appalachians and those elevations, they were they were here and they were abundant. Yeah. But as those glaciers retreated and the the climate kind of cooled, they just started getting pushed into these narrower and smaller, narrower and smaller areas until now, like in East Texas, for example, they really only exist like in these super steep shaded canyons, you know, where there's these little microclimates that are much cooler than in the surrounding areas. And you see another like area of Pleistocene refugias, like the hill country, right? Yep. So in the Edwards Plateau, where you have some of these, these kind of steep shaded canyons, you get things like uh, red columbine, eastern red columbine, um, and you get spice bush and witch hazel and basswood. And, you know, you get a lot of these eastern species that are getting pushed. They've just been pushed into that one little area. Yes, slimy um, salamanders you can you can consider into the Pleistocene. Yeah, totally. Relics. Yeah, I mean, you know, they still consider those Plethodon albagula the same as the western slimies like in right. Arkansas and Oklahoma, oh, right? Yeah. But, but probably yeah. something different. Yeah, nobody's, I mean, nobody's taking the time to look at them. Yeah, I feel like I mean the slimy sal the the plethodon glutinosis complex. Those slimy salamanders are so chopped up, right? In in areas where they're much more, uh, at least geographically closer in terms of habitat, like between them and stuff. So I, I feel like there's got to be something going on. And then another, uh, I guess, Pleistocene relic that people might be familiar with are the big tooth maples, right? Yeah, big tooth maples and, and big tooth maples are actually more of a western thing. Okay, and so that's kind of cool too because in the in the, the Edwards Plateau, you do have some of that western influence coming in too. You've got like um, Texas madrone and um, big tooth maples and things like that, but you also have the eastern like chinquapin oak and. So not exactly the same story as the. the but it is. I mean, it, it's it is still a too. relic. Okay, it's it's a relic. So I mean, if you think about it, at some point. You know, I mean, maples obviously radiated from a single species at some point. So right. at some point, there were fewer maple species. And, you know, just the various processes of evolution led to the, the species diversity we have today. So climate change. Yeah, so you've got that mingling of east and west coming from both sides. So cool, man. So yeah, cool. My favorite in East Texas are the beach, the beach slopes. I just love right. them, man. They're phenomenal. And this, the site. The first site you sent me to last weekend, I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. Just huge beech trees dominating these steep ravines and slopes. And God, it was just magical out there. I didn't even see anything good. I mean, I got the blood root, but um, they weren't in full bloom. But it yeah. was just cool to be out there, you know. It was just amazing. I mean, some of it is just that. like the woods. Like being an old, like, you know, I I, I don't know. That, that, that canyon might be old growth. I mean, you know, the, a lot of these canyons we have now, some in east texas were a little were too steep to log and you yeah. know with that primitive equipment so some of them got left or some of them might have just had they might have put the effort to pull out a pine here or there or something you. like that right um others were probably cut over once you know yeah. turn of the century late 1800s and they're, they're pretty mature they're pretty mature by now yeah huh. um but yeah sometimes it's just being in those woods itself like seeing a seeing a beech tree or, or seeing you know an old magnolia that might or an old bald cypress or something that might be like you know hundreds of years old and just thinking about what's what's passed under that tree or what what what's perched in that tree right you know, in its lifetime. often in my post on instagram i'm always or even on here i'm always talking about like pristine like pristine habitats or, or a mature forest or 
I'm sure some people are like, what does he even mean? It's we have the strong desire to, to see the original form of these ecosystems. Yeah. What, what, what e- the earth's processes uh, formed over millennia yep. and, and the natural state pristine, no human influence. Um, Cause they're so rare now. It's so rare to see a piece of East Texas that, that it hasn't is. been influenced by humans. Yeah, or, I mean, almost anywhere in the eastern or, U.S. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even in the West, where there are "quote unquote" old growth forests, like like the cross timbers for right. When you think of old growth forests in Texas, we're wanting to see old growth piney woods or you know big, whatever big trees, big oaks. And... But in in the cross timbers, there are a lot of old growth really? remnants, and it's just... but it's not like it was right yeah. because if you think about the cross timbers and prairies. It's much more of a, of a kind of this dotting of oak hickory woodlands, prairie. It's kind of this, you know, open disturbance dependent system. Yep. And so you've got quote unquote old growth woods out there with oaks and things that are probably hundreds of years old, but there's no more American bison, there's right. fire suppression, and there's all these other things these disturbances that were eliminated that they're not they're not like not, they want it's not representative of, of what it was yeah. before settlement yeah. yeah would you people uh i don't see it very often but like i like to think of old growth prairies too like they obviously the, yeah. the grasses themselves aren't old but the 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 prairie itself if yeah it's intact, the soil it's an old prairie, it's the it's sod all the is soil. Yeah, it's the yeah. soil yeah yeah if you get a prairie that has never been broken by the plow you know, even if it's been grazed, I mean, you can just get. It's going to support dip, like oh. much more the species yeah. richness. Yeah, you get that micro topography and. Oh, when I see mima mounds, I, I get all excited. Yeah, you get a mima mound that's like a foot and a half high, and you've got a completely different yeah. plant community on top on the on the side. Yeah. What What is your understanding of the mima mounds? I don't know, man. I mean, I think it's a bit <laughs> of a mystery. I, I right. can only say what I've read, and I've read things that it's you know, based on wind deposition or based right. on, you know, wind or water, basically transporting these, the sediment to these little, you know, progressive mounds and stuff like yeah. that. But I, I, I couldn't tell you one way or another. Yeah. Whatever they are, they, they're indicative of unplowed prairie and there's possibility for rare plants and animals. That's yeah. why, that's why we like them. I was down yeah. in Smith Point yesterday, and they're they're driving down the main road. There's tons of Mima mounds, big ones, yeah, all yes. down that road, and yeah. they're standing out right now because they, they've been doing doing a lot of prescribed burns lately. And Ooh, that's going to nice be nice stuff man. down there. It's really nice. Stuff yeah, you'll there. probably so if they're burning there, I need to go because you'll probably get like Baptisia alba, Baptisia sphericarpa, these really showy false indigos and other stuff like that. That's going to start popping. I've seen a false indigo, yellow yellow flowers. Yeah, so the Baptisia sphericarpa is the one that has the tall, so it has like a tall inflorescence okay, of yellow okay. flowers. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, 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 that might be what you saw. They're, they're gorgeous, man. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, um, can we take a very quick bathroom break? Yeah, man. Go ahead. And no I problem wanna, at all. I want to touch a little bit on disturbance after this. All right, man. Sounds good to me. All right. All right. We're back. We've been going for uh, about an hour, I guess, huh? We Doesn't feel like for- it. We can go for another hour. Yeah, I'm good for another hour. I got I got a lot of stuff noted here. I haven't been really looking at it because it's uh we've been uh kind of naturally flowing through it already. But yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You can uh you want to talk about disturbance? 
So we can start yeah. there. So, you know, we like to talk about what was lost and like, you know, species that are rare now that used to be common. But one kind of thing that I've been thinking about lately, and I don't know of any studies that have really tried to document this. And frankly, I don't even know, I, I guess, you know, it'd be hard to use breeding bird survey data or anything like that because I'm looking at a longer time frame and that's been around. But if you think about some of these neotropical, these breeding neotropical migrant songbirds that we have in East Texas. So I'm thinking like painted bunting, indigo bunting, prairie warbler, blue grosbeak, yellow-breasted chat. Um, you know, a lot of these species, you find them in these early successional habitats, right? And today, the best place to find them is like pine regeneration stands that are like five to 10 years old or, you know, you're, I mean, age is going to depend on a variety of things right. like site, you know, site indices and things like that. But <clears throat> you've got these birds that are dependent on these early sectional habitats. And I would think historically what that probably would be was like after a tornado comes through and just like knocks out a big swath. And then that kind of regenerates naturally, or you have a, a real hot fire that goes through one year or in an old growth forest. Even if you have like a, you know, 150 foot tree falls down and, takes other trees with it and creates a little pocket of sunlight you know, to reach a couple acres or something like that. That's what they would have been utilizing historically, I would think, yeah. you know, but today, I mean, modern, modern, uh, silvicultural practices and, and, you know, forestry and things like that. And even just, just disturbing people clearing a pasture or whatever, and then letting it grow up over time. I think we've created much more, of that type of habitat than was ever here prehistory. You know what I mean? So yeah. I bet I'd be willing to bet that some of those bird species are probably more abundant, at least in East Texas. I mean, a lot of them are probably declining in terms right. of population nationwide, but, but around here, I would be willing to wager that some of those species are probably more abundant now than they ever have been. That's important to point out because yeah, humans have, uh, largely negative effect on native yeah, species, well, but some species happen to benefit from human land use. Sure, and it, it's a piece overall. of the puzzle. So like as a, as a land manager, it's a piece of the puzzle, right? So maybe you shouldn't only manage for pristine old growth, but you should also manage for some early successional habitats kind of thing. You know what I mean? The only thing that, that I don't like about that, I... I you see it out in certain uh, WMAs around around East Texas where they they're doing a lot of like they'll they'll clear forests to turn it into savanna. Uh, there's one and the place in Anderson County. I won't go specific, yeah. but um, but like the and that, that's not a, that's a bad example. But uh, we like old growth because you have the chance of seeing really rare plants. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that's the yes. That's the difference. Um, yeah, for a lot well, of so that. So I think it's a so I think there's kind of a different problem, right? Obviously, the old growth stuff that we have, we need to preserve it. Right. Because there's so I mean, little of it left. That's my opinion. Right. Yeah. But when you're actually talking about like habitat restoration and management and things like that, you know, if you got some land on the Piney Woods, maybe it's not. And I think a lot of like quote unquote preservationist or, you know, folks like that, their, their thought would be like, well, let's let this become a climax forest again or let's, right. you know, let but maybe you should be looking at it with a little bit different lens and there's cool, like, you know, 
sustainable forestry initiative and these other programs, you know, that are geared towards land managers who really want to look at things beyond just pine or beyond just white-tailed deer or whatever it might be, you know, there are some programs out there that allow for that. And I think it's kind of cool yeah. to think that you can you can still manage the land for a resource, but have probably a net positive in what you're doing. And it kind of gets back, you know, you, you talked about Leopold and, how, you know, once you put on those glasses of a ecologist or a conservationist, how depressing things can be. And like, no doubt, like there have been so many times when I just like sat, like, I wish I had a time machine so I could go back and see what this looked like 250 years ago, you know, and we have just or destroyed the land. Had cameras. I wish those people had cameras so we can get yeah. real photos. I mean, we've just, we've ruined it. We've destroyed it. We've lost so many things like we can never get back. Right. Yeah. Jaguars, like Jaguars aren't coming back to East Texas. No. Um, black bears, uh, maybe a, a, a just slightly more likely that they'll come back at some point, but I'm not particularly hopeful for it. Red wolves are gone. You know, a, ivory build woodpeckers, Carolina parakeets. We've lost so much. And so it's easy to despair, but like, there's still a lot of cool stuff out there. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, and that's kind of like what you're saying with Flickr and, and me writing about these different things. And it's like, I, I do want people, I don't want, I don't want that to be like the final message. I want that to be a part of the story. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yes, we did these very bad things and we need to learn from them. But like, let's also look at successes. Like, let's look at like, you know, the Lacey Act and hunting regulations in the early 1900s. Like, I mean, it could be a lot worse. Like white-tailed deer were almost wiped out. You know, it's hard to think about living in a place where like a white-tailed deer would be some yeah. kind of a novelty to see, right? But turn of the century, that that's what it was. Elk, you know, elk were almost eliminated. Um, some of these other species today that are quite abundant, they're, they're making a comeback. American alligators, bald eagles. I mean, th there's a lot on that list. Pronghorn, you know, pronghorn, they think were potentially white, you know, their population went from maybe 30 million to 10,000 by some estimates, right? I mean, that's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percent. But now populations are back up some, you know, upwards of a million or more. Yeah. So like, there's a lot to be hopeful for. There's a lot to lament and there's a lot to wish we had done differently, but I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. How, so how would you, I mean, I guess you kind of just kind of described the chapter where we're in um, and the story of conservation here in North America, but yeah. like, how will people, how will historians and biologists in like a hundred years, how will they be characterizing like this era that we're in like the post, like we came out with all these environmental regulations we're, we're, we're past the, the extinctions of the of the bird like uh, parakeets and the passion passenger pigeon and a lot of those species but now we're in this period where species are some species are coming back but we're still losing very specialized species how, how where, where are we at in the in the story well, you, you know i think that we're i think we're at a kind of a critical juncture because whenever and i wasn't around you know when the endangered species act was signed into law and some of these other things right but when that when that happened i think a lot of those efforts were bipartisan support from everybody right mm -hmm. where we're at today is a lot of natural resource management has become very political yeah um 
and you know the the resources are the one that that's what suffers from it yeah. um, or it can suffer so like i don't think I, I think the important thing to think about is that we don't become complacent we don't become complacent because white-tailed deer are common and other species are common right so yes we want to manage for rare species yes we want to recover those things but we also want to keep the common things common right right and so yeah i mean i i don't i don't know how historians will view us necessarily but i do think that that's what we need to be thinking about now yeah is you know what are we going to do are we going to what are we going to focus on and i think we need to have a broader focus than just looking at listed species or looking at you know these required regulations and stuff like that i think we also need to be looking at making sure that we don't repeat past mistakes and things like that because folks of those generations are mostly gone now you yep. know the folks that remember what it was like to when white-tailed deer were rare or things like that th those folks are mostly gone now for me the the biggest thing i always think about is conserving as much land as possible as fast as possible before it's developed <laughs> because then when, when land is uh you know plowed over with concrete there's just nothing you can do at that point. For the yeah, most part. but I agree, but it's also complicated because acquiring that land is just like one step in the process. Right. Yeah. You also need to be able to manage. It, you have to manage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so there are situations where I think keeping land in pri you know, keeping land private is a benefit if those private individuals are conservation minded. Right. right. Um you know, trying to, you know, acquire as much land as we can would be great if we had the resources to. Or when I say that, I'm also thinking about the conservation easements. Conservation like, easements and things Acquiring like that. land under conserv some sort yeah, of conservation. Yeah, That's I think. Uh, yeah, probably what uh, I mean. I think you're 100% right on that. We want to put as much land into conservation as we possibly can. Right. And, and honestly, I don't, I mean, Texas is, uh, I often complain about Texas being like, you know, majority privately owned of like over 90%, but um, it makes it more special when you do get access to private lands versus, you know, oh, like a is. national park out West. I'd rather go to like some of those odd places you sent me to in the piney woods where there's literally yeah. nobody. Something, I mean, that was public, but same sort of idea. Like, uh, you know, when you get access to really cool areas and, and they're not disturbed by a lot of people, there's not, it's just people use them for like a lot of, people in texas use their land for cattle right and if yeah. it's but if it's a large enough ranch it's fine and um i think that's fine as a as a conservation tool if if they keep doing that and a lot of wildlife benefit yeah for sure no there is something and it's a little bit like of a selfish thing but like getting access to private land it's so special other people like and seeing and i've seen some good stuff man i mean oh, yeah, we man. we're lucky enough to to have these really good friends in sabine county that own this incredible uh, slope forest and you know that that's where um it's got all the rare spring ephemerals or most of them at least and it's yes. where we discovered this um anemian bitter natum this false ruin anemone out there which is the second very you know second documented occurrence in texas and it's wow. just like seeing something that so few people have seen and like getting to be a part of that it's like something special you know yeah. and and um, it, it, I, I don't mean to be elitist, like I don't want other people to see this because, I mean, I think it would be great if other people could see it and, you know, be able to get an appreciation of what is out there, what could be. Right. Um, 
but just being one of that select few that are lucky enough to see that spot. It's a, it's a cool feeling. It really is. It's so special. Yeah, man. Let's see here. See what I got on my list here. You've been recently very obsessed with white-tailed deer, (laughs) which is really funny. Yeah. You know, it's a, that's a species that, uh, very popular in the sportsman industry. Not a lot of naturalists care about them. Yeah. You know, I, I do have, I've always kind of been known for my non non game and my, um, my, you know, plant photography and stuff like that. But as ever since I was a kid, I really liked, uh, ungulates, especially like, uh, something about their life histories, this, this rutting period and those behaviors and stuff like that is super cool. And so, you know, I finally, I, I don't remember what it was that, triggered my desire to go down and look for white-tailed deer but I did and I found some in a spot in a preserve that they're they don't experience hunting pressure they get a lot of uh they're habituated to people and we went down you know during kind of the the rut the white-tailed deer rut and getting to see some of these behaviors up close like it just gave me this newfound appreciation for them you know I mean watching like big white-tailed bucks um, visiting licking branches and, you know, making rubs and scrapes and bird dog and does and fighting and, you know, chasing off rivals and lip curling, you know, getting into a Fleming, just watching all this stuff happen in this rapid succession during the road. Like I was hooked from that. And so now it's like an annual thing that, that, you know, it's just one, one more little, annual event to, yeah. to look forward to each year and, and so yeah i think we don't have you know, a lot of megafauna so we don't in texas uh, really don't and they are i mean it's probably their most revered most popular mammal species on the planet like I, right. I, not on the planet but which is what pushes people like me away from them <laughs> yeah exactly so like a lot common. of people so they're so popular they're so commonplace they're so familiar yeah. that i think a lot of people just become desensitized to them and yeah. they're like well it's the hook and bullet crowd and yeah. i mean n- nothing against hunters because i think hunters can be exceptional conservationists but you know a lot of like the ecologist biologist type they're like well let's focus on something you know different but man right. i no the fact that they're popular doesn't take anything away from how cool they and they're like they're like these little ghosts you know they're like these ghosts of the woods and they're everywhere but nowhere you know i mean you you might see a doe and a fawn but seeing a big buck out in the woods is just such a special thing but then when you can see go to a place and see you know mature five and a half year old bucks at a you know, close, up close, engaging in those running behaviors. It's just something awesome, man. Yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, when I, I was, when I was a kid, my, my dad was, he, like I used to deer hunt with my dad and he was, he was fascinated in white-tailed deer for the same reasons. Like the buck, like these bucks are like this mythical creature in the woods and then yeah. tricking them or uh, spending enough time in the woods to be able to see them. It's yeah. like such a rare thing. Um, yeah. That's what, that's I, what he got out of you know hunting is going and chasing white-tailed deer and uh he wasn't interested in sitting on a feeder and you know watching them yeah. come in and all that he wanted to see them out in the woods and that you know that's cool yeah you know and, I, and i'm not a hunter but like i totally get it like right. i could i could imagine that high like if you put in the work and it's work right i mean 
hunting unless you're you know in one of these situations where you're paying some exorbitant amount of money to shoot a deer (laughs) at a feeder on a ranch right yeah you know i think most hunters are putting in a lot of work they're patterning deer they're spending it's not just hunting season right they're spending nearly all year looking for sign patterning deer scoping out spots finding that spot and sitting and waiting sitting and waiting sitting and waiting and then like i get it man to finally see that buck step out and be able to you know, harvest that animal and use that animal to nourish your body and stuff. I mean, I could, I could see how that's just a high, just like I was talking about with that salamander experience earlier, you know, I mean, that's gotta be a great feeling. A deeper connection to the natural world that we're all outdoorsmen and naturalists are after. So cool. Yeah. I I mean, I had, I've shot, I've harvested two deer in my life and neither experiences were that magical. They're both does and they were like on feeders, you know, it was really boring. But, yeah. uh, but but getting to eat deer fresh venison is uh oh there's something to say for yeah for like you you different than buying that meat from the store that meat. yeah right. yeah totally i get it but yeah like even you know even just like the timing of the rut and just like how so we're getting back into how everything works together you know yeah. i mean you know you have these deer that are rutting so these bucks or any rutting speed like elk think elk or, or moose or whatever these animals are undergoing this extremely rigorous activity they barely eat they barely sleep they're essentially like working themselves to death they're losing huge percentages of their body weight and they're doing it all like right before the leanest time of the year right before right? winter yeah and so you're like why that why why, would, <laughs> why the hell would they do that yeah. but then you realize it's to give their offspring the best <clears throat> chance of survival right it's so that they drop fawns they drop calves at that period of late spring and early summer when plant growth is lush and there's plenty of good nutrient rich food for them. So it's like these animals are literally in how many, but I mean, any, any big ungulate that goes through a rut, a lot of those animals are dying, you know, I mean, they're, they're either succumbing straight away or they're succumbing to predation. Right. I mean, we think like, well, the predators go for the weak and what, but even like the biggest bull elk out there is pretty pretty damn weak after the rut right right so i mean they're they're opening themselves up to predation to starvation and all that stuff and like it's all and you know we don't know the the minds of animals right we we don't know that it's really a conscious decision or they know that they're doing it for that reason but maybe they do i don't know i don't know what an elk thinks or it's purely instinctual or it's pure instinct but the fact is they're doing it Mm -hmm. you know and it's just like i don't know all that stuff is just super, super cool to me. Have you ever been interested in going to Africa and, and, and experiencing the megafauna there? You know, I, I'm sure if I went, I'd just be like blown away, but it's not like a bucket list thing for me, honestly. The one, the one, one Africa trip I'd really like to do is like Rwanda, Uganda or whatever, you know, Central? Up and see the, the mountain gorillas. Yeah. See, Central Africa is, is much more interesting yeah. to me than the, than the Southern savannas like, or the what what is it like Virunga Volcanoes National Park or something wherever they've yeah. got those mountain gorillas, that'd be just awesome. And there's like that's where there's uh there's other great apes there. There's there's bonobos, I think. And uh, yeah, there's a lot, you know. I think where the actual cool mountain gorillas are, there I don't know that there's there's other like St. Patrick great apes with them, but but you don't have to go far, like down general, the general area, okay. Pick up some different things, yeah. Yeah. 
but it's like that's all in the congo area right congo basin yeah so the congo is a very it's a pretty big yeah it's like the pretty big um you know that equatorial rainforest but the the actual where the mountain gorillas are is these high elevations like liken it to like a cloud forest okay okay i see you know it's these these really high elevation um forest imagine how would you (laughs) it's always weird for me to think about how do you comp uh compose a photo of, a, of another a fellow great ape out Dude, in the i bush. don't know i, I feel like, like we're used to photographing plants and herbs and like you know some yeah. megafauna but uh if i like saw you, like a I just it should be so weird you know a silverback like if i saw like a silverback gorilla like staring at me and like i could tell like he's literally like trying to figure me out like he's like probably thinking about what i am you know what i yeah. mean like i don't think it's a stretch to say that that's what would happen right I, I think that would be like I would be blown away, and then just watching you know young young animals playing and oh, man. watching those family interactions and stuff. God, yeah, great great apes are so cool. I got to yeah. experience great apes. I guess that's a bucket list thing for you. Yeah, the, so the mountain gorillas would be a bucket list thing for sure. Yeah, about any other areas in the world, South One, America. Or- there's a couple like I've, I've done some, you know, South America is awesome. I'd like to go to the Pantanal to see jaguars, but one spot I'd really like to go is um, some of these high elevation, like these montane forests in China. So, I mean, like, where, you know, where they have giant pandas and things like that. Okay. But, yeah. That's just a little piece of it. There's all, so, you know, the genus Cyperpidium, which we've got a few species here. There's this incredible, okay. incredible Cyperpidium diversity in China. Weird all these crazy looking, <clears throat> you know lady slipper orchids and that is crazy they're those what are the, the those golden snub nose monkeys have you ever seen I, those they're i don't know crazy crazy looking monkeys that that live in those real high elevation forests and there's just there, there'd be a, a lot of really cool stuff to see there so china's one <clears throat> do you know much about the like we we share a lot of uh genera with with china not a lot, but well, we share some general with China. Alligator, well, yeah. cryptobranchids, similar. Uh, yeah, I mean, really, there are a lot of genera that are shared. So, um, I mean, there used to be, everything used to be connected right. by a land bridge, right? So especially like the whole Arctic. So like the the higher, the northern latitudes in North America and, and, um, Russia. and Eurasia, you know, yeah. they, we share a lot. We share okay. some species, right? Yeah. Okay, like yeah. Ursus arctos, the brown bear is like okay, uh, the wolverine gula gula like the wolverines a lot of those kind of either arctic or, or subarctic species gotcha are super wide-ranging moose also you know they call them elk in, in eurasia um there there's a lot of species that are shared but then yeah there are a lot of genera there like different beaches you know there's uh phagus the genus for beach there's oh, phagus wow. species in europe and you know all that all that kind of stuff so we do share a lot of genera just because yeah. in the not, not geologically speaking in the not so distant past we, we we everything was connected right there was a snake in china that that i think it used to be in a kistradon or it was in that oh, really? group but but you look at it, it looks just like a cottonmouth or a cantil or something you really? can tell it was like it's yeah. a close relative for sure i think there was recent taxonomic taxonomic changes but yeah, I don't know. China's just always seemed like it, uh, like an alligators, you know, like they got the yeah. Chinese alligator, we got the and then the the paddle, uh, paddlefish. There's the only other, only other place in the world to see paddlefish is in China. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Well, and it's crazy. I don't even know if it's it's the same genus, but you know, they've got 
softshell turtles soft in like turtles. China. I mean, right. those are in like I think parts All of, of Southeast Asia, Southern yeah. Europe, and Southeast Asia too. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, there's a lot of cool. So that's a big. That's a big. Uh, China's goal. a bucket list, yeah. and then like I I um. You know, I've been to Alaska. That's another kind of cliche one. I've been to Alaska, but it was a long time ago before I was into my, you know, before I was really into photography and stuff. I'd really like to go to Alaska in September and see like the caribou and the the moose rut and, yeah, you know, see bears, you know, nice. see brown bears catching fish and all that kind of cliche stuff. I mean, that one ranks pretty high. That one's actually probably like a little bit more doable. Yeah, right. <laughs> Especially than, uh, you know, yeah, then a big yeah. guided trip to trip to China or Central Africa, but there's just so much out there, man. And, and quite That's, frankly, like, I've barely scratched the surface of the biodiversity of Texas. You know? I know. There's a, there's a lot to see. Do you want to give people a, a good sell for why Texas is not just being biased, but like Texas is very unique, right? And, and why, yeah, like, why is it so unique? We've, you've already kind of touched on it, but. Yeah, I like, so cool. I think that a big part of it is where we sit well i mean first what is it like 800 miles east to west right it's a big state so right. we cover a big area so but it's take not political boundaries take political boundaries away like just this one little area of the world yeah so rather just, unique we really have different we have climate our climate is influenced from both we've got influence from the pacific and influence influence from the gulf and the atlantic right so where we're sitting, like East Texas is basically Eastern, right? We're not too terribly different than like Virginia and stuff like that. Right. And so we've got that kind of similar climate, similar plant and animal species, things like that. Um, but then you have this influence from the Pacific coming in where you have kind of monsoon fronts and all these different fronts that come in. And as a result, you get these bands of increasing rainfall and so like you go from like five to 10 inches in the desert a year in the low desert. Right. I mean, up in the sky islands, it's, you, yeah. you, you have a different situation. We got to talk about the sky islands at some point yeah, totally. before this is over. <laughs> but um, you, as you move East, you get just these bands of increasing rainfall, which rainfall and, and water availability just has a huge influence on the plant communities. Right. And then, I mean, you also have very, varied geologic substrates and varied soil types i mean all of that all of that comes into play but we are i mean if you look at us texas is like kind of like almost smack dab in the middle of kind of north america if you're including right. latin america right and like i don't know how true it is but i've heard if you if you flip texas on its hinge in the east like it almost goes to the east coast if you flip it on its hinge to the west, it almost goes to the west coast. If you flip it on its hinge in, like in the panhandle, it almost goes to Canada, right? Wow. And so, like, I mean, it just Never tells you, yeah, like we're right in the middle yeah. of things. Yeah. Um, and and so I think that's part of it. But yeah, so we have like the eastern deciduous, you know, eastern mixed pine hardwood forest province coming into east Texas. We have the Great Plains coming down into like north central Texas and central Texas. We've got Tamalipan thorn scrub and Chihuahuan desert coming down into the, the Rio Grande Valley. We've got the Chihuahuan desert hitting West Texas. We've got that Great Plains and the short grass prairie and the panhandle. And then we've got like our own little unique, um, the, the Edwards Plateau. And, yep. you know, that's our most unique uh, geologic uh, area. I mean, that's I guess. something that's pretty uniquely Texan. I mean, it right. borrows from a lot of other stuff. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of 
different influences, but as a whole, it really is like yeah. something unique to Texas. Yeah. So we got it. We got so much. Yeah, we really do. How do you think about uh, like the big thicket? Do you yeah. do you do you uh, consider it like a very distinct area? Do you think it's been overhyped? It's just a southern part of the Piney Woods where it's a little swampier. Well, and what's the? Because I love the big thicket, and I've read all the Geraldine books, and yeah, I guess it's very unique, biodiversity rich area. But it's like well, you know, I don't know. They, they call it like a biologic crossroads. Yeah, crossroads. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, don't think that's the case yeah. because, like, they're like they try to say like, oh, you've got influence from the desert, which you don't. But, we do have some plant sand species. Hills, but... Yeah, we have some plant species that are some plant genera that are more typically yuccas and desert. Cactus but even and... like the yucca, the yucca, the cactus, the apuntia species, they're eastern. They're not the same species that are well, west. I wonder if they did and, that during that period when they were trying to find the rationale to consider yeah. it, right? Is no, that what, no that it, it is. I mean, yeah. it is a hype, but... And I'm glad think, they did yeah. that because now but we have you, cool public land. But. Yeah, but what you do have is you've got basically the Gulf Coastal Plain and that eastern deciduous province. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we're not so terribly far from the post oak savannah blackland prairies and stuff and so you know so what you would have historically had in the big thicket which the big thicket has been i mean very severely degraded from what it once would have been but you get the the gulf the the gulf coastal plain with longley pine flatwoods things like that and then you get the eastern deciduous with that's where you get the beach slopes that's my favorite part of the big thicket is the beach it is man (laughs) and then you get um you know these prairie inclusions really like those are overlooked. Those they're are overlooked. overlooked, but those are something that are scattered all throughout the eastern U.S. Yeah, like that's not so. We don't have prairie inclusions because it's a crossroad with the Great Plains. I mean, no, the it's just part US of the landscape. Lots of that, yeah. yeah. And you know, a lot of it's soil driven. There are like pockets of just real dense black clays, just right. like the Gulfman yeah. Prairies, and they're then you would marine and origin. Yeah. So yeah. So they they arise from those. Yeah, the marls that have just a lot of like. Uh, uh, decomposing marine sediment basically right. it's like limestone it's like if limestone decomposed kind of thing right. and um you know so you get the soil and then you also get um disturbance right you know so you, you, there would have been grazers i don't know like i mean we know for a fact that american bison were in east texas but now whether it was like they Bred here, lived here year round. I don't know. You know, they may buy you know bison by their nature were such migratory animals. They may have transient for some part of their year come down here and and trickled in through here. But you know, you have a you have a fifty acre prairie inclusion in the middle of the woods. It won't take bison too long to pick that over. And then you know, if you have that adjacent to some other upland where fires coming through, that fire is going to sweep through that prairie too and keep the woody species away that are already struggling to get a foothold in the soil there. So, I mean, we have those prairie inclusions all throughout the Eastern U S and so, you know, if, if we're saying a crossroad, it's really a crossroad between those kind of Eastern mixed pine hardwood forests and Gulf coastal plain. And that's what it is. Um, But there's a lot of cool stuff, man. There's a lot of cool stuff, no doubt. What's the primary, like, so like the big thicket that came from the bear hunters thicket, right? Which was the big palmetto, Dense, yeah, like they flat come, woods. you know they come bagels like uh, the term bagels thrown around to me yeah. a lot of different things and to to me, me it's a very specific thing 
To me, it is. I mean, because Sweet, Sweet all, Bay, Sweet Bay Magnolia, and, and grown on the seep, Strawberry Holly. Yeah, it's so grown on me, a seep, right? All, pretty yeah, much always. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's like it's not an area with a bunch of standing water. To me, no. a bagel is an area kind of at the base of a slope or the base of a sandy, you know, hill where you got a bunch of seepy water coming out. And so you've got sphagnum and mushy ground, and you've got tons of ferns and, and rare plants. Bays. Yeah, tons of cool stuff. Orchids but a lot of people them. like they see like a Tupelo swamp or they see like no, a, that's not a bagel. You know, something like that. They call it a bagel. Yeah. But um yeah, so I think those those quote unquote bagels are what really lends Big Thicket its name. I got you. Um, but yeah, that's a misnomer. There's right? just a lot of confusing a lot of the old literature on the big thicket is yeah. just, you know. Well, and no one can decide like, what is it. Yeah. The hunter's thicket is like the real restrictive one, or which the, is like really bears. focused in Hardin County. Hard, yeah, the Hardin County then, thick palmetto woods. Yeah. But then you have these broader, these increasingly broader interpretations of what the big thicket really From is. The Trinity to the Sabine. I mean, yeah, I mean, quite frankly, like you, yeah, you can still pick up similar elements in like Grimes County and Sabine yeah. County and right. Montgomery County. It's, it's so I don't know. I don't know how to define. Uh, to it. me, I, I like I grew up just south of Hardin County and the in the county adjacent to it. And to me, Hardin County and Tyler County are like the heart of it, where there's yeah. a bunch of no. a bunch of wetlands, but there's still some yeah. uh, sandy longleaf uplands and uh, yeah, beach slopes. And there's something about it that just feels like the big thicket. I right. <laughs> You know, it's funny because I think part of what defines the thicket. So, like, um, there's this like ancient ridgeline called the Kasachi Wold, and that runs like it runs like all the way from Louisiana, like all the way down to South Texas, and it's yeah. just this high ridge. And so, like, if you think um, it runs like northern Jasper, Newton counties, and stuff like that, um, and so like you know parts of northern Tyler County, and at the wold and north of the wold the landscape's really hilly mm -hmm. but south of the wold it just kind of gradually slopes down to the gulf and so that's why like in hardin county you don't get a lot of the hill like you go up to see the longleaf pine in angelina or jasper county it's real hilly much different yeah but down in hardin tyler counties it's real it's that's, real flat that's the dividing line is that kasachi wold yeah it really Which is and if you look at a map of texas like uh, if you follow the net the netches and the trinity rivers you'll see at about the same latitude, they do this little dog leg where like they're running south, they're running south and then they cut east and then they go south again. Gotcha. That's where the wold is. I mean, that's how much of an impact it has. It has, so it's, it, but you know, you do get in the big thicket then what you get is you don't get the, the, the formation deposited sand. You get sand that was pumped by like Village Creek or some ancient stream that just changed its course and yep. dumped a whole bunch of sand up and made this little hill and you know and those longleaf savannas around there they're uh they're much different than the ones like north and like jasper county and Savannah, they are right? they're like, they're very different yeah. they're very different and you know there's so better there's some pretty good representation of high quality examples in like the angelina Samine national forest mm -hmm. the big thicket there there's there's not a lot right I mean, there really are not like of that wetland pine savanna in fact the best examples are probably on like private or you know, nature conservancy land or right. something like that. Um, you know, big thicket is burning more now. I've, I've noticed yeah, I mean, and big Sandy and stuff. They're starting to burn and manage. I think historically they have, I mean, like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a government agency and it needs funding. And right. a lot of times, you know, there, there, there are a lot of things that need funding <laughs> that are run by our government. So sometimes things like that don't get, don't get 
the funding to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I mean, you could hardly fault the big ticket, but yeah, they, they do have their own unique set of management issues. But yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. They, they've burned some of those sites a little bit more. Turkey Creek is, is terrible, though. If you hide back in some of those uh, long leaf areas, it's it's yeah really there's a, there is one pretty good one this 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 sand hill this high sand hill off turkey creek that's kind of neat but yeah um yeah other other than that there oh there's some there's some like there's some pretty good seeps and bagels there's some stuff out there but it's yeah. like it's like a piecemeal it's not okay. it's not like a big chunk it's like a little bit here a little bit there i guess you've read about geraldine plenty yeah yeah what it's so cool to meet her did you oh, ever know some of my friends were lucky enough to work with her. Yeah. You know, a lot of a lot of people I know knew her, but I never had the chance. Yeah, never got to meet her. She, I mean, yeah. she didn't pass that long ago. I don't think, right? No, it was a few years ago. Yeah, it was a few years back. She wasn't working for the longest time, I guess. No, but she was still kind of spending time out there in her little preserve and yeah, her awesome little preserve. Mentoring, yeah, mentoring. Yeah. You know, groups of volunteers and stuff. Yeah, so she, she did. I think it's got cool stuff, rare plants, but you often go to the Sky Islands too for rare plants and, and cool yeah. communities and stuff. And that's a special place, the Davis out there in the Davis Mountains and the Chisos. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. The Sky Islands are so cool because you get, you know, you can go from desert scrub to these. You know, a lot of people don't realize there are a bunch of, there, there's some really good, like, um, semi-arid prairie out there like really high quality prairie with prairie dogs and pronghorn and kit foxes and you know a lot of the the prairie birds that that, that come through there you know grassland grassland songbirds and right. prairie plants i mean there's a lot of good prairie out there too kind of at the base of like the davis mountains for example um and then you start going up and you can go through the lot you, you go through the pinion juniper forest and you finally get up into the ponderosa pie you know i mean the davis mountains don't have doug douglas fir for whatever reason but the chisos and the guad the guadalupe mountains do and you get into this montane forest and you get like rocky mountain species a lot of the flora but even some of like like stellar's jays you know you get stellar's jays up in the davis mountains and some of these mountain you know these rocky mountain typically rocky mountain or western u.s birds and stuff like that um amazing out there (laughs) the orchids out there are phenomenal yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. The hexaelectric orchids. Yeah, yeah. hexaelectric orchids out there are, are super cool. And, you know, things like uh, hexaelectric grandiflora is that's really the place to see it in the US. Like, there's a couple of little isolated populations in the Edwards Plateau and like in the White Rock Formation in North Central Texas. But in the heart of their US population is up there in the Davis Mountains. And that's just, that's one of the coolest, you know, these bright, I mean, they look like something out of the, the tropics. It's a super cool. A lot of people don't even know we have orchids here in Texas. And yeah. 50, 50 or 60 species. Yeah. Or yeah. Mostly terrestrial. So it's not like the people think of orchids, like the ones that grow on trees and stuff, but. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have any epiphytic orchids. In not Texas. a single one. Though. Florida probably, has Florida has a lot though, I think. Right. Yeah. Florida has a lot. And then there's that one that, what is it like? epidendron magnolia or something like that i can't remember the 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 green fly orchid that comes like to some adjacent louisiana parishes oh really my guess is that it probably is in texas somewhere (laughs) but i don't don't think i guess that's a cool thing about plants you're i mean i don't know how many times you've you've uh found a plant it was like a a range extension or first documented in texas 
if like being into herbs, there's very little room for discovery locally. I mean, there still is, but it's harder. Yeah. Plants, there's endless this room for discovery. You know, I was, I was in a little sandhill uh, prairie and uh, west of a uh, college station last year. And I found like this very small flowering plant. And I was like, that looks interesting. Took a picture, sent it to Adam Black. And he was like, man, that's like, like several counties further south than what we thought they were documented. Yeah. And it was like a count, it was a range extension. Like, yeah, know, it's, it's so cool. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to make your mark on that kind of thing, plants yeah. are the way to do it for sure. Yeah. Um, because I mean, you know, they're so unreliable to you that not every plant blooms every year or it might bloom in smaller numbers certain years or if you have certain annuals that are really weather dependent they might not even come up certain years and stuff like that so it's um yeah you can you can find you can make some discoveries in the yeah. plant world still for sure like you made one like this week no suspected um, into some plant that was suspected to be here and you went and found it or something i can't remember what it was violet maybe oh yeah oh well, so that was yeah <laughs> So that wasn't a, so that was a, the species we know is here. So viola okay, pedata okay, is the birdfoot violet, okay. which is okay. if you if you if you're familiar with violets, like if you the birdfoot violet is like five times bigger than an average violet. Oh wow! It's just this really. I might like that violet. The reason I overlook violets is that I just I overlook the small stuff. Oh no, this one like the bladderwort and the sundews the other day. I just yeah yeah. <laughs> I don't, just don't one, pay attention to the small obscure stuff as much like I should. This one would this one would definitely catch your attention, yeah. but that, yeah. So that there's two varieties. Well, there's there's a lot of different variety in the color, but most of them are just one color. It's kind of like a bluish purple lilac type color. But there's this other really striking one that's got the 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 top two petals are this deep velvety purple, and then the bottom petals are this kind of bluish right. purple like real light purple. really good contrast and i've seen it in books i've seen it in other states i've seen it in shenandoah national park and all that and um joe i used to talk to so i just talked to joe after i found it joe liggio who wrote the wild orchids of texas um and we used to say like yeah i, I think somebody said they saw one in newton county one year this that and the other and you know it's got to be out there somewhere and then finally i was just I saw a big patch of those bird for violets and started poking around and there they were just all this color morph, you know, so not a rare, not a new species, nothing groundbreaking, but even that just a color morph for the species, right. it's just something new and exciting for sure. <clears throat> all right. Well, let's, uh, let's get into the end zone here. Um, yeah. What are some like, uh, I don't know, future aspirations, um, you know, just keep doing your thing, traveling and documenting biodiversity and sharing stories. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like, you know, so I have, it, I have, I have book aspirations and yeah, there's yeah, a couple of projects I, I, I'm working on actually, but they just seem like they're, they're taking a while to get going, yeah. but um, I've been doing more. Life articles. gets in the way. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, and you're working with, you know, some of these are working with other collaborators. Right. And, you know, I mean, everybody is very busy. Most of us have other full-time jobs that take it up, but um you know, I, I had three articles picked up by Texas Wildlife Magazine this year and trying to trying to make a bit more of an effort to actually put myself out there. I mean, every year I get people, I mean, every week I get people asking me if they could use my photo for this or if I could help with that. And, you know, that's so uh, good. Like when you're just you used to just be on Facebook and Flickr, I'm always like so few people get to see Matt's work and it's so frustrating. <laughs> I mean, you finally yeah. got Instagram. So you get more and more people now which is great yeah instagram writing the articles is also great yeah 
Yeah, my Instagram has its own frustrations. It does, but I don't need to overall, it has a higher reach. <laughs> it's, it's not, it is no doubt the best platform for exposure. Right, no doubt. And and that's not a vanity thing. It's it's a um, the more people seeing like your stuff, the better. Because like the way you're able to capture, I'm not stroking your ego. It's just the way you capture biodiversity and write about it. It's inspiring. Like it's just uh, so critical that more people are exposed to this sort of information. <laughs> Yeah, well, man, and I'm really happy to hear you say that because yeah. I mean that's what I want to do. You know what I yeah. mean? That's yeah. why I do it. I, yeah. I, and it's fun. Get, you know, it's fun too. But oh, I mean, it's an outlet for me, like no doubt. Like yeah. both, it's therapeutic writing and right. and photography. It's all very therapeutic. But at the same time, like, um, you know, I I I put that much time and effort and put it out there just in the hope it's like casting a line in the hopes that you know. I'll hook somebody on, on this right. species or I'll hook somebody on this region or this concept or whatever and spark something in them where they want to learn more and they want to, who knows where they can take it. Like you, man. Nah, I mean, you got me hooked on plants and that helped me in my career. No like, doubt, dude. And that's I've what got so me a job is my plant background. <laughs> I, I've been so impressed just watching. I mean, there are not many folks out there like you that want to learn it all, that want yeah. to, you know, take it all in and yeah. that have that interest um and the patience to do that you don't see that a lot that's kind of like a dying breed man so right. I, I can see like a you know i mean i'm not, not not that i'm particularly old or anything but seeing a, a younger generation like you pick that up and knowing that that's going to be carried on yeah that's a man that that's the best yeah that's awesome yeah one thing uh so, yes yeah, one challenging thing for a lot of younger people that are trying to get into it i think they're intimidated by reaching out to people like you i know i was before I ever met you in person, I was very intimidated to like ever reach out to you because you're just a very elevated figure in my head. Yeah. But um, what I've learned is uh, if you just uh, are, are genuinely passionate, like don't worry about not knowing all the taxonomic stuff and the literature and like just uh, being really passionate can get you in totally. the door with, with uh, these sorts of uh, social hierarchies. Totally. You know? And look to anybody out there who's feeling that, like I felt it too. Like right. there were, there were people that I really looked up to and I was like, what, what do I say? I don't want to say the right, you know, like, how do I word this? How do I, I phrase this? And like that, that happens to everyone. And, you know, every time I've put myself out there, it's paid off. Right. It really has. And, you know, like, don't, don't be like, Hey, where'd you find the snake or you know, <laughs> exactly. Although hey, I think I did me? that to you a couple of times, but uh, tell... <laughs> I worded well, it better I mean, than that. <laughs> once you, once you establish a relationship with right, somebody, yeah. like, totally. Like yeah. I, I feel perfectly comfortable sharing things with you because I know you're, you know, an ethical, responsible right. naturalist that that's going to, you know, you're never going to do anything that would be to the detriment of that right. resource. But, you know, if that's how you approach me, I'm probably not even going to respond, you know, right. um, but you, you know, if you're like, Hey, you know, I've got this question about this ecosystem or, Hey, you know, I, I, I've got some questions about salamanders. What kind of habitat do they, or what should I be looking for? And that kind yep. of stuff. Like, I'm totally happy to, to help or, you know, like yeah. photo equipment, like, you know, Hey, what, what, what camera gear do you use? Or right. how, yeah, I get that a lot too. Like, you know, what, what photo equipment should I get? Or how do you get started in this? Or how do you, you know, break into being having images or articles published that I'm totally open to that. Cause yeah. we all, I mean, you know, everybody needs, needs help yeah. or needed it at some point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like when I, when I first discovered you, like I had been hunting in the piney woods my whole life, with my dad fishing out there and stuff. And, and I was like, there's this guy that's like documented all the 
everything I've always been curious about. So it was just, I don't know. It really, really hooked me, <laughs> you know? But, yeah. Uh, and and I love, cool. I loved every minute. And I still go yeah. out to some of those same spots every year, same you know, and, spots. Yeah. Ah, yeah. It's just it's a cool place. Yeah. <clears throat> you got any, um, an ending message for people listening that, uh, either aspiring naturalist or, or people that aren't that interested, but, you know, are curious, just a conservation message or a natural history message and anything you want to end on here, Matt? Yeah. You know, I think, I think you can't overstate enough how important passion is. Right. And if you have a passion for this, get after it. And, you know, I don't think everybody needs to be so, you know, such a generalist in their interest or anything like that. But, you know, just start learning about things and don't be afraid to reach out to people, read, you know, read, go out and look at things, try to identify them, try to learn about them. With Google now, man, I can, you know, there's still plants every year that I don't know, you know, existed in Texas, or I don't know existed, period, and I find them, and I'm on Google trying to find every article I can about them, you know, I mean, and and just, just learn. And, you know, the other thing is, you know, share it with, with folks and, it's funny because, you know, my, my wife's a biologist too. And I, you know, we actually met in Argentina when I was working down there and, and I used to go out all the time alone, but, you know, having friends or having family or, you know, share that passion with somebody else and have them ask them to share it with some, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, we are, there's still plenty of folks interested in this stuff, but it is a dying breed really is to a degree. And, you know, try to try to expose friends, try to expose family to stuff like that. And uh, and yeah, just keep being a naturalist, keep making observations. Don't don't worry. Like you said, if you don't know the scientific name of every plant and insect you see out there, don't worry if you don't like fully understand how the carbon cycle works or, you know, you don't know anything about the geology. Like no matter how much, you know, you know, there's always just as much that everybody doesn't know and you know yeah. nobody knows it all i called a sundew a, a bladderwort yesterday but it's all good yeah. you know i learned uh, yeah. i learned that there's utricularia in my home county i didn't know that yeah before. how cool is that yeah. that's freaking cool i just yeah i just had a brain fart you know and uh i learned yeah. something new and don't feel bad i've done that too like i've yeah. i've i've I just get excited i'm out in the field and i'm posting right up right yeah. off the bat and posted just, a picture said it was this and somebody and, and yeah. here's the other thing like if you are gonna correct somebody, try to do it in private message. Right. <laughs> you know if you do it on public. I don't know. You know, there there's a certain amount of elitism, I think, in this hobby. That's what scares field. people away. I know. Don't don't be part. don't be like that. You know, that's why and, I, and partly why I started this podcast so we can have these sorts of conversations. Yeah. Make it more accessible yeah. because and that's a that's a small portion of it. The problem is I think that small portion tends to be very vocal in right. like social media or other public outlets and things like that and so it's just like hunters right like you know, people get a perception of hunters based on a very small subset of actual hunters right the people right? that are and posting so people, yeah people get this negative impact you know they have this negative image of hunters that are out there just for the thrill of the kill and you know yeah. don't respect the animal and they this that or the other but that's not that's not yeah what hunting's about and that's that's such a small percentage but it's I mean, easy 
I don't go around so, saying it, but I, I was a hunter. That was my first introduction in the natural world was hunting with yeah, my dad. I mean, so I don't, this, I don't really identify as like a hunter first, but you know, labels are, are worthless anyway, but like, that's who, that's a big part of who I am, but yeah. You know, and this, uh, I mean, a lot, that's a lot of people's backstory, yeah. honestly, as yeah. they started hunting. I mean, if you think about it, like if you're out in the woods, wandering around the woods, sitting in a yeah. stand, you know, I talked to a buddy of mine, um, James Childress all the time about how he'll, he'll just be sitting in his tree stand and he'll be watching the chickadees come in or you know, <laughs> be watching a, a box turtle come eat a mushroom beneath the stand or, you know, I mean, you just see stuff out there and it's a, it's a really great introduction to what's going on out there. Yeah, man. That's, I think that's a good, uh, that's a good ending message where, um, uh, you want to, uh, plug your blog and your Instagram and where people can, yeah. uh, view your stuff yeah i'm um instagram's at naturalist journey um and then i have a, a blog which is i'm very um i've been neglecting a little bit but matt buckingham photography.com and there's quite a few there's over 100 entries there just various natural history related topics um flicker i think if you just search my name matt buckingham i've got a little spotted salamander as my All right like a face as my is my avatar so you can find me there um i've got three so texas wildlife magazine put on by texas wildlife association um definitely worth supporting if you're into wildlife conservation and things like that in texas if you support that organization you you, you can get their magazine and i'll have three different articles this year um you know and, and others in years to come hopefully there yeah so yeah I, stuff, I mean, shoot me a message if you got any questions and Thanks so much for coming on, man. I look forward to getting out in the field again soon. Yeah, man. It's a good talk. And yeah, there's still a lot. Things are late this year, so there's yeah. still a lot of plants to bloom. So we'll probably have uh, we'll probably do another episode sometime because uh, I have I just have so many questions. <laughs> Could we yeah, just we keep barely, going on? But we got to end it at some point. So uh, you yeah. can hang around. Uh, I'll go and end it there. Thanks so much, Matt. All right, man. All right. Thanks. See you.